Good morning. Some of you may know me, many of you do not, so that we're not complete strangers. Uh, I'll introduce myself briefly. My name is Justin Garrett. I've been on staff here at The Crossing for about 10 years, three of which uh, as a pastor, and you don't see me much on Sunday mornings, likely because my primary responsibility is to oversee Crossing students, which is our 6th through 12th grade ministry. So now that we are properly introduced, let's open in a word of prayer. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all that you've done. We pray that you would speak through this worship service, that you would speak to us through these songs. Pray that you would speak to us through your word in Hosea. We ask these things. Amen. As I've been preparing this message, several things have been weighing on me, both of them revolving around the idea of pain. There are two pains in this world that I think probably rival anything else you can imagine, maybe worse than anything you can imagine. The first is the loss of a child and the pain that comes from it, and the second, the pain, and a, the pain taken, felt from adultery and the betrayal that that is. A few weeks ago, my cousin passed away from cancer. And although it was difficult for all of us in the family, it was particularly difficult and painful for his parents. The saying goes, no parent should outlive their child. And in a room this size, unfortunately, tragically, some of you have experienced that type of pain firsthand. And although None of us can ever imagine truly what it's like. We might be able to get a small glimpse of it if we try. You can imagine holding your first child, standing in the delivery room. You have such dreams and ambitions for that little one. Your whole life revolves around them. You'd do anything for them, maybe even die for them. And as I looked at my uncle's face and as I listened to his words, I knew that he would trade places with his son if he could. And the other pain that rivals child loss is the pain that comes from the betrayal of adultery. Once again, in a room this size, there are unfortunately people who have experienced that pain firsthand on both sides. A woman who had had both an affair and been the victim of one wrote this in the New York Times several years ago. Once the affair is out in the open, you will strive mightily to justify yourself. You will begin many sentences with the phrase, I never meant to. But one look at the hollow-eyed, defeated form of your spouse will remind you that such a claim is beside the point. You can both get over this. Yes, but the innocence will have gone out of your union and it will seem as if a bone has been broken and healed, but one that rain or cold can set to throbbing again. So now take the other side. You discover your cheating spouse as I once did and what you experience is not far removed from post-traumatic stress. It is a form of shock. As your mind struggles to accommodate this wrenching reality, you won't be able to sleep or focus. You will lose your appetite. Stress will blow out your metabolism. And you will torture yourself with details known and imagined. 
But as the writer Paul Thoreau says in one of his travelogues, it is very easy to plant a bomb in a peaceful, trusting place. And that is what the cheating spouse has done and then detonated it. We're going to be in the book of Hosea this morning, and I bring up these two tragic pains because we find both of them within this passage. But if we're to learn anything this morning, we can't simply be a spectator in the stands watching this. No, we have to enter into it and become a participant like we all do in any of our favorite movies. And as you do enter into this story, I think you'll find that you're far more of a participant than you would like. The people of God to this point in history have had their ups and downs, and as any parent with a wayward son would do, God has been doing everything he can to get their attention. He's sent prophets. He's reminded them of the reality of death and judgment. He's reminded them of how much he is devoted to them, how much he loves them, and that he proved that with their miraculous escape from Egypt and with his provision in the wilderness afterwards. He's chosen different images, different illustrations. He is a shepherd that cares for his sheep. He is a king that oversees his subjects. He is a father that loves his children. And yet none of those images, none of those attempts thus far have gotten their attention. At least not for very long. And don't miss that. God is constantly doing things in your life and in my life to get our attention. And yet we have a profound talent for ignoring and not noticing all the signs. What has God been doing in your life to get your attention? Has he reminded you of the reality of death and judgment through the news, through friends and family, through illnesses? Has he reminded you of his goodness and how much he loves and cares for you by blessing you in ways you can't imagine and by reminding you that he is the giver of all good gifts? Or maybe... God has been intentionally allowing profound disappointments and obstacles to come into your life to remind you that he is the only thing in this world worth pursuing. Has he gotten your attention yet? And if so, has it lasted very long? So here's where we're heading, and maybe God will use the next 20 minutes through a rather shocking story in Scripture to get your attention and mine. And we'll simply read the love story of Hosea and Gomer, if you can call it a love story, starting in chapter 1. And when we go and look at the pain and the betrayal and the devastation left behind from adultery, we'll come back and we'll answer four questions. One, what is spiritual adultery? Two, Why do we do it? Three, where does it lead us? And four, what does God do to fix it? So turn with me to Hosea chapter one, verse one. And when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. 
For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This all seems fairly normal at first glance. God's talking to Hosea, which might seem a little strange, but he's a prophet, so that's what happens, right? And he's directing certain parts of his life, specifically here, who he is to marry. But wait, Gomer isn't the type of woman that any parent would want their son to marry. I mean, can you imagine going through your wedding day, not just with the itching thought in the back of your head, this person might cheat on me, but with the absolute confidence that he for sure, for sure will. That this person that you love more than anyone else, that you are devoted to, that you are committing to, that that person will tear your heart to pieces and turn your world upside down. And yet, that is what God calls Hosea to do. By the end of verse 3, things seem to be pretty normal. They've got a kid, they've gotten married, but things get worse. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. There's something very small here that is missing, and yet it is pretty important. It's a pronoun. Earlier it said that Gomer bore him a son, and yet here it simply says she bore a daughter. The paternity of this child is in doubt. Hosea's deepest fears are being realized. To feel the weight of it, we have to put ourselves in Hosea's shoes. He's raising a kid which is tough enough by itself. And now he has this ticking time bomb of adultery called a wife that may be detonated at any point. In fact, it might have already gone off. But it gets worse. Verse 8. After she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, Gomer, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So imagine, if you will, standing in the delivery room, and your wife has endured pain, and that pain now is led to this beautiful son. And then doctors and the nurses, they carry him away briefly. They give him a good check over, and he's fine. He's healthy. And so they swaddle him up, and they bring him to you. And they put him in your arms, and you're holding your son for the very first time. And then the nurse asks what should be a benign question. She says, what's his name? And you respond, not mine. This isn't my kid. And then you raise this son with that name that is a constant reminder of the betrayal of your wife. Good morning, not mine. I made your lunch for you. Come on in, not mine. Dinner's ready. Not mine. Good night. I'll come tuck you in in a minute. And now we fast forward to chapter 3. 
So between chapter one and three, Gomer's adultery has become full-blown. She has left her husband. She has left his home. She has abandoned her children, and she is hopping from man to man, lover to lover. The Bible uses a shocking and potentially offensive word to describe her. That word is a whore. But it's not a slang term here. It is a literal description of what she has become. And yet, things get worse. Verse 1. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. You see, it hasn't only gotten worse for Hosea. It's continued to get worse for Gomer. For Hosea, he has lived in the reality and the devastation of being betrayed. He's raised three kids by himself. One for, kid is for sure his. One may or may not be, and one undoubtedly is not. And has a name that reminds him painfully every time he says it. In Gomer's adultery, we now see the consequences of that. She is at rock bottom. She's at a slave auction. So one of two things has likely happened. Either she has hopped from lover to lover and her last one has discarded her to the curb and no other man wants her. And she has debts that she must pay off, but no recourse, no job to do so. The implication is she can't even be a prostitute anymore. And so she sells herself into slavery because that's the only thing she has left. The other option is that one of her lovers really wasn't a lover at all. In fact, he was a pimp. And he used her for himself and was selling her out to other men. And now she's old and she's not worth much. So he's cutting his losses and he's going to get as much out of her as he can before she's worth absolutely nothing. The things that she worshipped, the people that she looked to have turned on her and left her destitute. Do you ever feel like the things you pursue and the gods you worship and the things you spend your time on that all they really do in the end is they leave you destitute and empty? So Gomer is standing up on this platform with all the other slaves and she's either naked or nearly naked. Because the, the people bidding on her have a right to see exactly what they're bidding on. She most likely has done two things to try to protect whatever little humanity and dignity she has left. She has most likely turned her back to the crowd. And she's likely closed her eyes the way a two-year-old does. Thinking, well, if I can't see them, maybe they can't really see me. And now her time is up. It's her place in line. And the bidding has begun and she hears strange voices of strangers calling out prices to buy her. And within those strange voices, there is one familiar one, one that she hasn't heard in quite some time, one that fills her with regret and shame, but also with just a glimmer of hope. For that voice is Hosea's. 
It's her husband's. But why? Why would he come back? Why would he be attempting to buy her back after all she's done to him and to their kids and even to herself? I mean, he's gone through something equivalent to post-traumatic stress. He's raised those three kids. He's paid a price, a hefty price, and he will continue to pay a hefty price. He's paying a physical price to take her home. He's paying an emotional price as all of the memories and all of the pain and emotions are stirred back up. And he's undoubtedly paying a social price as his friends and neighbors and family ostracize him. And yet, Hosea is there because there is no price too high to buy his wife back. His story is not just a window. It's not simply a factual piece of history that's there to teach us things about other people. Yes, it is the story of Hosea and Gomer. Yes, it is the story of God and Israel. But it is also the story of you and God. This is not simply a window. It is a mirror. It is a mirror being held up to our faces if we would have eyes to see them. You and I are spiritual adulterers. We are Gomer but do we really care? So we turn to our four questions. First, what is spiritual adultery? Well, spiritual adultery is simply sin. It's cheating on the one who is devoted to us, the one who loves us, and the one who has paid a hefty price to buy us. We often think of sin simply as disobeying an authority figure. And that is true, but the image doesn't go nearly far enough. Sin at its core is deeply relational. If you're married or if you have children, you know this. You know that your sin, what it does is it ruptures relationships. That sometimes it seems like your sin affects the other people more than it affects you. And that's what spiritual adultery does. It has ruptured our relationship with the God who is devoted to us. But we don't think of our sin that way. You don't think you'd be an adulterer. You'd never do that. And yes, you may not have or ever will commit adultery against your spouse, but you and I have committed adultery against God. It's tempting to see your sin, my sin, is simply forgetting to put the toilet seat down. That's a minor offense in a marriage, but adultery is no minor offense, and it leaves a devastation behind. Do you see your sin that way? If you do, you will not feel very bad for sinning, and you will not feel all that thankful for being forgiven. Question two, why do we commit spiritual adultery? 
Chapter 2, verse 5 says this. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. You see, we commit spiritual adultery because we think those other lovers, those other gods, those other things that you and I pursue, we think they offer more and better stuff, more and better rewards than God does. We all know that we're not supposed to brag about who we know or what we've accomplished. We all know that we're not supposed to lust or envy or cuss someone out. We all know we're not supposed to be overtly selfish, but gosh dang it, I just want to be. And I think, I'm convinced, I'm tricked into thinking that that is what is going to provide me more and better rewards than God. We commit spiritual adultery because it seems fun and exciting, at least for a little while. Here's how the author of that New York Times article ends her piece, speaking of that sordid hotel room where affairs are had. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit an affair in neatly? If you were 75, would you rather have years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery? And then she says, from where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel room, whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one. And despite the sex and the excitement, there is no view from this room that is worth having. I think my sins are pretty minor. I don't really believe that they're adultery. But the reality is that's what we do to God and there is no view from the room of spiritual adultery that is worth having. And all the excitement, all the satisfaction and provision that we think are offered by those other gods, by those other lovers, it was all a lie. Verse 8 says this, And she, Gomer, did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Gomer's been duped. All of those lovers that she thought were providing for her, they didn't even have anything to offer her in the first place. Everything they had, everything they gave her was borrowed. Do you realize that all the glimpses of happiness and pleasure that this world ever offers, that it's all borrowed? It's all borrowed from God. And yet, you and I live in this happy little delusion that somehow the next thing we try or the next time we try the same thing, whether it's success or achievement or popularity or relationships, that somehow the next time it's going to be better. Psalm 4.2 says this, How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Don't you see we're deluded? We've been duped. We think that happiness and pleasure and achievement come from something other than God, and, and yet it never does. And the Bible says not only factually that we are deluded, it says we love delusions. Is it possible that you and I love delusions? That we love being duped like Gomer? 
Question three. Where does spiritual adultery lead us? And this is a fascinating and sad picture. This comes straight from the text. Verse six, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. This is where spiritual adultery leaves us. Gomer is at a slave auction, naked and destitute, having been betrayed, having been duped by the lovers that she followed for so long. And the more she followed them, the more that delusion was part of her life, the worse her life got. And like her, our spiritual adultery, always, without exception, will eventually leave us destitute, naked, lost, and confused. If we continue to live in that delusion, our lives only get worse. We chase our lovers, and we never quite catch them. We have great plans for achievement and pleasure, but our way is blocked. Do you ever feel like life just doesn't quite work out for you? Do you ever feel like the very thing that you most desperately seek is the exact thing that you never actually get? And if so, have you ever asked the question, why? Because this passage, it tells us that's not bad luck. That's God orchestrating the events of your life behind the scenes because he loves you and he wants you to return to him the same way Gomer returned to Hosea. He wants you to say it is better off for me with my first husband. I'm always better off with God. Those are the two options. Option one, continue to be duped like Gomer and life will only get worse. Or option two, get out of your delusion and realize that a life devoted to God is always better off than what you have now. And so now, our final question, and by far the most important question, and by far the most beautiful answer we will find this morning. And that question is, what does God do to fix our spiritual adultery? Because you and I, like Gomer, are standing on a stage, naked and destitute. And God is in the audience and he still loves you and he is still devoted to you and there is no price too high that he won't pay to buy you back. And amidst all the strange voices that are calling out to us, that are promising us things, there is one familiar voice. Hosea was that voice for Gomer. She heard it. Will you and I hear God's voice? Maybe it's been so long since you've sought God or even wanted to listen to God that you don't even know what it would sound like. Maybe you feel so unworthy and so defiled that you don't think you're able to listen and to follow to God. Or maybe, like me, you don't think your sins are all that bad. You're duped. You're in the delusion that your sins are more like leaving the toilet seat up instead of the adultery that ravishes your relationship that it truly is. Hosea is in the crowd and there is no price too high to buy Gomer back and there is no price too high for God to buy you back. 
That, that phrase, buy you back, it comes from the idea of redemption. We use that word a lot in Christian circles, and yet we might not know what it means. It's rooted in either military lore where they would exchange prisoners or on the slave market. And that's what it literally means. It means to buy back something. It means to buy a slave that has no value, that has nothing to offer, that nobody else wants. And that's what God does to us. But see, God is trying to get our attention, but he's not getting our attention standing up there saying, I told you so, even though he has every right to do so. He has warned us repeatedly in his word that a life lived without him, that a life lived for lovers only gets worse. And he's even built in to your and my experience the reality that when we pursue other things, we chase our lovers and we never catch them. We seek them and we never find them. Instead of holding it over our heads, he says this. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Is God alluring you this morning? Does God want to woo you? This morning, the pain of betrayal and adultery, it's what you and I, whether we know it or not, inflict upon God every time we sin, every time we stay in the delusion, every time we worship false idols, and every time we just forget about him and live life as if he's not around. We are Gomer, we are destitute and miserable and God is Hosea, betrayed and inflicted with a pain that none of us would ever want to inflict upon anyone, let alone the God of the universe. Do you feel, do I feel the weight of what we have done? It's not petty stuff. We've committed adultery. And yet this is how much God loves us. This is how much he woos us. And it might be one of the most beautiful passages, most beautiful images in all of scripture. I said at the beginning that there were two great pains that we were gonna find in this passage, and yet we've only talked about one. You see, God fixes the pain of adultery committed by us with the pain of child loss. He sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die on a cross so that the adultery that you committed could be forgiven. There was no price too high for God to buy us back. He fixes one great pain that we've done to him by inflicting willingly the pain of the other upon himself. All around us, we have movies and songs and fairy tales and fictions about a love that would be so beautiful that it would look like this, and yet this is no fiction. This is what the God of the universe, these are the prices he has paid to woo you and to woo me. And so we come to the Lord's Supper, and in the same way that Hosea and Gomer renewed their wedding vows, God is calling us to renew ours with him.
Maybe this is your first time with a wedding vow with God. Maybe this is a renewal ceremony, but that's what the Lord's Supper is intended to be. It's intended to be a reminder. It's intended to be a means of grace and a means of continued repentance in your life and in mine. So if you're believing in Jesus, if you want to get out of the delusion, then Jesus invites you today to renew your vow to him and to join with us in this meal. On the night that he is betrayed, Jesus ate a meal with his disciples and he broke bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the wine and he poured it into a cup and he said, this is the covenant of my new blood poured out for you. Take and drink. There will be stools and stations all along the front Simply come when you're ready. Tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine that will be in our hands or in the juice that will be on the stool in front of us. You don't need to say anything to us, but we will say a word of encouragement to you. Additionally, there are white baskets, white cloths with white baskets up here. All the money given to those go directly to helping the physical needs of those in our church and in our community. Let's pray. God, your word teaches us, Hosea teaches us that there is nothing that we have done, nothing we could do that would ever disqualify us from the grace of God. And Hosea teaches us that there is no price that you are not willing to pay to buy us back. Convict our hearts of the weight of our sins so that we may glory in the weight of your sacrifice. Amen.